so we really have to wait and see. Um, in the end, a lot of the policymaking in this area is strongly, strongly influenced by politics. And I think where our politics are headed uh, in the next few years is a difficult thing to know for certain. Hello, and welcome to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. My name is Gina Lim, and I'm joined by my co-host, Chris Park. With Article II treaties decreasing drastically over the past administrations, there has been a trend of presidents using executive agreements to handle international affairs. This increasingly liberal use of executive agreements, along with unilateral withdrawal and re-entering of recent treaties, has been the cause for conflict. Can presidents withdraw from treaties without congressional consent? Are executive agreements transparent enough, and should Congress be more concerned? How will this dynamic impact future U.S.-international relations? In order to answer these questions, joining us today on the podcast is Mr. Scott Anderson. Scott Anderson is a visiting fellow in the Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution. He is also a senior editor and counsel for Lawfare, and a senior fellow with the National Security Law Program at Columbia Law School. A former U.S. diplomat and a government attorney, Scott is an expert in foreign relations law, international law, national security law and policy, particularly as they relate to the Middle East region. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Hi, Scott. Thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Happy to be here. So the first thing I wanted to ask on the topic of executive agreements and treaties is what exactly are treaties? Could you explain us Please explain that to us and for the listeners. And what does the U.S. Constitution exactly say about the treaties? Yeah, absolutely. Treaty is a concept um, that actually has, or a word, I should say, that has different meanings in different contexts a little bit. Generally, when people talk about treaties, at least in the context of international affairs or international law, they use treaties to mean what are often, which I'll refer to as international agreements. And that means essentially a type of agreement between states or certain other actors that have a degree of international legal personality, meaning they have the ability to act on the international stage that establishes binding obligations between those states. So kind of like a contract between those states. Violating them can open up certain types of consequences under international law. There's a kind of set of default rules about how treaties are supposed to be abided by, how they may be entered into lawfully. Um, And there's a set of background rules uh, called customary international law that states generally, their behavior is generally regulated by that treaties can then supersede or amend um, by establishing more specific law applicable to the relationship between two states or multiple states in a case of a multilateral treaty or multilateral international agreement. Domestically, when we talk about treaties, we often mean what are called Article II treaties. And that's a reference to Article II of the Constitution, which establishes that the president may enter into treaties with the advice and consent of the Senate, provided that two-thirds of the members thereof agree. Something to that effect, I'm paraphrasing. Um, essentially, you could enter into treaties, which is a type of international agreement, meaning a type of agreement that's binding under international law. Um, with the support of the Senate through its advice and consent. But treaties are Article II treaties are not the only type of international agreement the United States domestic law allows the government to enter into. Uh, the government can also enter into what are called congressional executive agreements, which are agreements that are 
authorized by Congress. So instead of being authorized by two thirds of the Senate, they are instead authorized by a majority of both houses and signed by the president in the same manner as a domestic law. This option isn't discussed in the Constitution, but it's become accepted generally as practice over particularly the last century um, by the courts and by the executive branch and by our foreign treaty partners. And then there are what are often called executive agreements or sole executive agreements, which are agreements that the president enters into, which he or she views as binding, the United States views as binding under international law, but that he's able to implement or she is able to implement pursuant to their own executive authority, meaning the president doesn't have to go to Congress to get additional authority to implement that particular agreement. He or she can do it on their own authority. So you often think about treaties in this regard as um, you know, certain status of force agreements are often uh, executive agreements. They are agreements about the military. Many executive agreements fit in that ambit. Um, and a great growing range of treaties are being pursued, have been pursued as executive agreements over the last few decades. On top of this, it's worth acknowledging what is kind of in many ways the cutting edge of international uh, arrangements, um, which is a, a type of arrangement that's not actually an international agreement at all, which is called a non-binding political arrangement or a political commitment. Um, this is a sort of arrangement that states often enter into where they put it on paper, they make a bunch of commitments to other states about things they intend to do and have the best wishes to do, and they understand they have this common meeting of the minds about their intents, but they don't use language that triggers a binding international legal obligation, meaning there's no international uh, actually binding commitment to pursue that sort of behavior. Um, we've seen the executive branch turn to these more and more often in recent years because of opposition in Congress and Senate about international legal instruments, um, because they are more flexible diplomatic tools. In fact, they're used all the time, but they're more, being more used in more high profile incidents more recently. Um, and these agreements essentially are, are simply mutual understandings of the mind, but they're often structured in a way and put on paper so that they look like international agreements and therefore carry a little bit more normative weight, even though, again, they're not binding as a matter of international law. As you said, the number of treaties um, ratified you know, or even submitted to be ratified by Congress by the president has been steadily declining while, you know, the executive agreements, congressional executive agreements and other types of um, agreements have only been increasing, um, especially after the end of the Second World War and in recent years. How has this trend affected the type and scope of the international agreements made in recent years? It's a, it's a really good observation, and there's certainly been a kind of major impact here. Um, essentially, there is kind of an established understanding or practice, although the, the edges of it are a little fuzzy and up for debate, over what sorts of international agreements can be pursued as Article II treaties or must be pursued as Article II treaties and those that can't. So, for example, non-proliferation treaties, human rights treaties, it's generally understood that these have to be pursued as an Article II treaty by practice with the Senate and kind of a, an understanding between the executive branch and the Senate through consultations. Um, the, but the two-thirds of the Senate approval that's often needed to enter into treaties like that is just a very high bar 
in an era where we see a lot of political contestation, a lot of partisan divides uh, in our legislature. A lot of things have trouble reaching just the 60 vote threshold of over getting over the Senate filibuster, which you need for lots of legislation, lots of other things happening in the Senate. Um, this, of course, is six additional senators on top of that. So that's a pretty heavy, heavy lift. And we've seen international agreements and particularly uh, international legal obligations that subject the United States to potential review by international courts have been very, very controversial for really the last several decades, dating back to the 1970s and 1980s, as kind of a reaction, uh, I think by most accounts at least, to earlier efforts to use human rights treaties to try and advance domestic social uh, change and agenda. Um, And so we see the strong opposition to entering into Article True Treaties um, really over the last few years to the point that we we only see them debated sporadically. Uh, The Trump administration, um, the Obama administration really only entered into a a handful of Article Two treaties and only considered debating a few, many of which... um, ultimately failed to enter into. There's a disabilities convention the Obama administration attempted to get uh, ratified by the Senate and failed. Um, there have been other similar efforts as well. And so really, you know, Senate Article Two advice and consent has been focused on just a, couple, a limited universe of treaties, um, particularly like NATO expansion has been one area where we see in some action in the last few years, the Senate seems to be on board with and probably we'll see again with Finland and Sweden in the next few months uh, or, or year. Um, but other areas, people just see it as too politically costly. That has driven the executive branch to search out other avenues. Congressional executive agreements are one avenue uh, because Congress, it can be easier to get Congress, a majority of both chambers on board than two-thirds of the Senate. Um, but again, there's kind of a practice question about how easy that is and what sort of treaties you can use that for. Trade treaties pretty well accepted. Certain other types of treaties, other treaties, a little bit more of a question that, whether that runs up against the, the understanding of what has to be done by an Article II treaty. Um, and getting Congress on board is also costly because, of course, every presidential administration has a pretty big legislative agenda already of other things they need Congress's help with. And so more and more have turned to executive agreements. Um, executive agreements often are premised on delegations of authority by Congress or in existing treaties, or again, on the president's unilateral executive branch authority. Um, presidents enter into all sorts of executive agreements pretty regularly and routinely now over even pretty small matters. Um And they've really become a kind of a central tool for international lawmaking. But because they happen entirely within the executive branch, there are concerns about transparency and how they're used and how they may be used in the future. So Congress has a a few times now engaged in legislation that requires reporting and transparency around the use of executive agreements. There are big questions about how effective that oversight has been. There's good reason to doubt whether it has been that effective or whether the State Department has adequately complied with those reporting obligations the last few decades. And so there's a new effort to kind of bring that forward now. Um, But that sort of oversight has become the new norm now. Article II treaties really, again, fairly rare types of treaties that are only entered into certain areas. Lots of other measures are pursued through executive agreements or increasingly non-binding political arrangements. But that does complicate it in those areas where you traditionally need Article II approval to enter international agreement. So the ability to enter thing, into things like the Paris Agreement, for example, relating to climate change um, or certain other treaties has been severely compromised precisely because there is no, no confidence that they can go to an Article II treaty, but too much controversy that other mechanisms are available. And so there, that particular agreement was entered into as kind of a hybrid executive agreements and non-binding political arrangement. And we're seeing other sorts of creative lawyering uh, to, to get around those political obstacles in other ways. 
You mentioned the uh, Disabilities Treaty uh, during the Obama administration, and there obviously are many other Article Two treaties, you know, the Trans-Pacific Partnership comes to mind, that have been signed by the president, but not ratified by the Senate. What are the legal effects of these agreements once they are not ratified, once the Senate refuses to ratify them? What happens to these agreements? So it's a very good question. Uh, you essentially to enter into an international agreement as an Article Two treaty, you you need that Senate advice and consent. It's in the Constitution. So when the president signs a treaty, it is often a sign that they intend to abide by it, that they accept and support um, the policies embedded within that treaty, uh, and. Sometimes we'll even take measures to kind of provisionally apply them to the extent they can uh, as a legal matter under their domestic law before it's ratified. But until it's ratified and goes through the domestic legal procedures, and actually there's an added step after that where the Senate usually ratifies a treaty and the president then has to actually go back to the treaty depository and say, we've completed our domestic legal process. Now we can fully enter into this. Uh, and that's optional for the president to pursue that even after advice and consent of the Senate. Um, you know, you end up in a, a situation where those treaties are not legally binding and exiting from them, unsigning them, as we saw, for example, President George W. Bush do with the International Criminal Court, uh, Rome Statute, the, the, the stat treaty that underlies the International Criminal Court. Uh, you aren't our subsequent presidents who may not agree with those policies are able to roll them back pretty handily. Um, and so they don't have any legal effect. They may still have political effects. They may still be useful as um, points that the United States feels a need to comply with uh, as a political matter because they've signed on to a treaty and have suggested that they want to and intend to ratify it eventually, but they don't have any legal force. You also mentioned um, several measures that Congress can take to enforce greater transparency um, over various executive agreements that the presidents make, you know, reporting requirements that the State Department has to comply. What other methods of enforcement or checks on executive uh, agreements do you believe are needed to control perhaps the worst abuses of executive agreements so, you know, I think really the first thing to do when it comes to executive agreements and non-binding political arrangements is to pursue greater transparency. A lot of the use of these sorts of arrangements is going to be pretty unobjectionable from the perspective of Congress, because a lot of times they're used for pretty routine bilateral, multilateral relations. Um, and it's the sort of thing that happens at a volume and a density that the State Department or whatever other agency is involved couldn't plausibly go back to Congress every time they had to enter into one of these things. That's just not something that um, Congress has the bandwidth to take on. Congress doesn't act that quickly. Uh, but Congress does have reason to want to know what the executive branch is doing in this space as part of its oversight of U.S. foreign relations. I think that extends to executive agreements as well as non-binding political arrangements. Uh, although, again, with the latter, you need to distinguish from kind of the major non-binding political arrangements from the day-to-day kind of understanding that that is diplomats reach on a constant basis because that that would be such a volume of material they'd be hard for the congress to wrap its head around um once you have that transparency then congress might say well we don't like executive agreements being used in this particular way and then what essentially i think they can do is enact legislation that limits the president's authority to enter into those executive agreements or 
perhaps more likely, simply communicate with the executive branch saying, we don't like you doing this and you should stop. Because if you don't stop, eventually we're going to put limits on you or we're going to start putting appropriations uh, restrictions on how you can use related funds for related programs. We're otherwise going to make your life more difficult. A lot of these questions are resolved through that sort of informal bargaining between the executive branch and Congress, as opposed to informal sort of like uh, legal restrictions that Congress, I believe, in most cases could enact. There are certain core functions of executive branch authority that maybe the president could pursue even if Congress enacted contrary legislation. But the exact scope of that is very controversial. That sort of exclusive presidential authority, it's some people view it as very broad. Other people view it as fairly narrow. I tend to view it as relatively narrow. Um, but it doesn't come up a lot uh, because Congress and the executive branch often work out their differences before hitting that sort of contrary, uh, that point of pure tension where the executive branch, or pardon me, where Congress expressly prohibits something the executive branch is doing. Um, and the executive branch either does it anyway or decides to comply. Um, there, it's interesting, is an interesting area of law because it's just not clear what the answer is in a lot of these cases because they don't come up that much. And when they do, they often don't reach the courts to a point where the court feels the need to weigh in. So we don't know what the sort of ultimate line of authority is. But if nothing else, Congress, I think, has a very strong case to be made that it could set substantial limits here or otherwise make the executive branch's life more difficult if it didn't choose to comply. And so when it wants to, I think it, it can exercise that authority. The question is just how often is it necessary for it to actually do it? Um, and that really depends perhaps on your view of the underlying policies being advanced by these international arrangements uh, in the first place. Touching back then to the last administration, President Trump did withdraw from many international treaties, including the Open Skies Treaty and the Intermediate Range Nuclear or IRN Forces Treaty. And this has not been unique to President Trump. President Bush, for example, withdrew from the ABM Treaty. And you have mentioned that the Congress does have the authority to make their president life much harder in m many cases. But can presidents unilaterally withdraw from treaties without infant from Congress in a constitutional matter? Or on the other side, are they allowed to withdraw unilaterally from executive agreements? So, so this is a really interesting question and really gets at, I think, one area where we've seen some cutting edge legal questions arise in the last few years that don't, don't have clear answers. The Constitution itself does not say who can withdraw from treaties. There were conflicting views in the early generation. Thomas Jefferson at one point said that only Congress could direct the withdrawal from treaties. Other people said, have said things that people read as suggesting the president can do so. And throughout most of American history, it's kind of a mixed bag. You saw cases where presidents went to Congress for legislation to supersede treaties and other cases where the president did it kind of unilaterally, but usually coordinated with Congress to some regard. But they, they tended to be some coordinated effort, but not in a super consistent manner, because again, there weren't any defined rules by in the Constitution. Beginning in the 20th century, even before World War II, actually, but but really at a, a density after World War II, presidents began to assert the authority to just withdraw unilaterally. There is some question as to the scope of that. I think the safest grounds, the most well widely accepted grounds, is that the president can withdraw so long as it's doing so pursuant to terms either in the treaty or accepted by international law, meaning it can't just immediately back out of any treaty at once. Instead, it has to pursue the withdrawal provision, You know, whether it's a 
one year waiting period, which is quite common, which is the default rule in customer international law, or there are certain customary international law rules that apply for when you can terminate a treaty, for example, if there's a material breach by another party. Um, so there, there's this idea that the president can end treaty relationships and exercise the United States authority under international law to exit those relationships. Um, some people assert the president actually has even broader authority. John Yu wrote a legal opinion suggesting as much during the first Bush administration, although it was never acted upon, suggesting the president can kind of just end a treaty relationship anytime he wants, regardless of whether he does, does so in a matter consistent with international law. I think most people take issue with that view, but it is still out there. Regardless, the, the key point is, at this point, it's actually pretty well accepted as a matter of practice, um, although you know people can raise questions as whether this was consistent with the original understanding of the Constitution, that presidents can withdraw from treaties uh, unilaterally pursuant to those treaties' terms, or again, in a manner that's permit, permitted by international law. The question, the hard and much harder question is, but what if Congress doesn't agree and Congress actually enacts a law that says, no, you can't do that, Mr. President. We don't want you withdrawing from this treaty. Um, you know, Usually, we assume that if the Constitution is silent on something, um, that not always assume, but in many cases, we assume it is something of a shared authority between the branches, particularly where there's a very muddy historical record. Uh, and so I tend to find persuasive arguments that suggest that the Congress has a role here, particularly because we allow Congress to authorize entering into international agreements in the context of congressional executive agreements. Um, so it seems that they may also have a voice in withdrawing from those agreements. But we saw this issue come to a head during the Bush, pardon me, during the Trump administration, um, where over the Open Skies Treaty, a non-proliferation related treaty about sharing overflights between the United States, Russia, and other parties uh, to the treaty, um, the Congress actually enacted a provision that said, you have to notify us uh, an extra, I think it was four months or so in advance before beginning the process of withdrawing from this treaty, which itself had a year-long withdrawal period. And the Trump administration disregarded that because doing so would push the withdrawal for past the end of the, its first term, meaning if the president weren't reelected, he wouldn't be able to exit. Instead, we saw the Justice Department issue an opinion essentially saying that the president's authority to withdraw pursuant to the terms of a treaty or it consists with international law is exclusive to the president, cannot be limited by Congress. Um, and we did not see anyone, Congress or otherwise, withstanding step up to try and sue and vindicate the contrary view, although we did see statements by Senator Menendez, chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and others strongly saying, we don't agree with what the administration is doing. We think this is unlawful. Um, so there's this open question now. The executive branch's state of view is that no Congress can't limit our ability to withdraw. Uh, I tend to believe uh, and have written in, in a few places now that that is overstating the strength of their argument that, in fact, Congress has a very strong case to be made that it can by enacting very clear legislation or perhaps even appropriations restrictions saying you cannot use our funds that we're giving you to withdraw from a particular treaty set limits on the executive branch's ability. Um, right now, there is legislation pending in Congress to set up a regime that would limit the president's ability to withdraw from NATO. Uh, it's got strong bipartisan support. It's been approved by the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and it essentially installs this sort of sort of restriction, and then goes even further uh, to authorize litigation on Congress's behalf if the executive branch were ever to try and withdraw anyway, as it did with the Open Skies Treaty. If that becomes law, and I think it's a possibility, um, hopefully maybe in this, uh, in this next year, um, then we will see a case where the Congress has really flexed its authority and put its maximum argument against 
get in favor of the position that it can set restrictions on withdrawing from a treaty. Um, and I think that very well might help deter any future presidents who, like former President Trump, took a very skeptical view of NATO and threatened to withdraw. Um, whether Congress will extend this strategy to other treaties, we don't know. And whether the executive branch one day will call the Congress on what it's doing and say, nope, let's bring it to the courts and resolve this, we don't know either. That's the only way we'll actually get a final answer to this is if it's forced, eventually put before the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court feels compelled to weigh in and resolve the issue. Regardless then of what is currently accepted in the status quo on this issue, how have these increasingly unilateral entries and withdrawals from international agreements impacted U.S. foreign relations? Has there been a big impact there? I think there absolutely has been. Um, although the withdrawal is really part of a much bigger package of uh, policy positions. Um, you know, the Trump administration embraced certain views that uh, had been expressed by prior Republican presidents, but kind of took them to an extreme in its skepticism of international institutions and relationships. So it's hostility towards NATO. Um, it's hostility towards a number of existing treaties that it tried to withdraw from. It's attempt to withdraw from the World Health Organization, although that never went forward um, because it was reversed by President Biden when he was elected. Um, uh, you know, the effect that imposed sanctions on staff of the International Criminal Court who engaged in investigation of the United States, particularly hostile act um, towards uh, an international institution or arrangement. Um, and so the Trump administration took this very hostile view uh, and kind of underinvested and systematically kind of tried to disengage the United States. And again, it did so more extremely, but not in a way that's entirely unique. We saw prior presidents, for example, uh, President Reagan uh, and first President Bush and second President Bush all took steps to limit the degree which the United States could be brought before the International Court of Justice. The United States used to accept the compulsory jurisdiction of the International Court of Justice, meaning it could be brought before it pretty readily for international disputes and was willing to defend itself. Now, the United States has withdrawn from several of those treaties uh, and re resists entering into treaties that have such provisions so that a lot of its actions can't be brought before the International Court of Justice aren't within its jurisdiction, absent that consent. And I think that that system of, of lack of engagement has left the international system uh, weaker, um, you know, and the United States rule in it weaker. Uh, there are numerous cases, the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea Treaty being the most uh, notable one, where there are international bodies doing really important work that are guiding how most states in the world are going to view fundamental issues such as rights of freedom of navigation and maritime law, um, that the United States is not participating in these discussions precisely because it refuses to join this treaty or subject itself in that case to potential adjudication by uh, a tribunal that the UN Convention sets up. That behavior, I think, is fairly foolhardy. The United States, if it's going to, uh, you know, celebrate international law and trumpet it, which it often does, particularly in maritime contexts and certain other contexts, even the Trump administration's national security strategy acknowledged that actually international law is very important in these areas. It needs to be willing to accept some constraints and some risks and to defend itself in the terms of the law that that body is building in terms of international law. Um, and the resistance to doing that, I think, has made uh, that the United States engagement on these areas very difficult. Recent debate over Ukraine and Russia's clearly unlawful invasion of Ukraine, um, I think, has actually triggered a bit of a different view on this, uh, particularly in Congress. Um, we've seen a number of 
particularly Republican legislatures who have traditionally been very skeptical of international engagement, actually come out and say nice things about the International Criminal Court. Um, we have seen uh, legislation introduced to make uh, war crimes prosecutable in the United States, even where they occur overseas, uh, which is something that's supportive of various treaty regimes. There's discussion about potentially ratifying a treaty on crimes against humanity. Um, you know, we've seen a lot of this re-engagement with the international system, or at least more openness to re-engaging with the international system, precisely because Russia's invasion of Ukraine seems like such a threat to it, and people are now beginning to appreciate the value of a norms-based and rules-based international system. But whether that will be enough to really push the United States in a direction where it's more wholesomely engaging with it, I, I don't know. I kind of doubt it. Um, but really, you know, there are a couple low-hanging fruit, the UN Convention, the Law of Sea, being the main one, that's a treaty that's had bipartisan support for a long time, just not enough to get over that threshold in Congress. But maybe this will be a moment where we can see progress on at least basic treaties like that, that have broad support. And that can be beginning to shift the momentum back away from disengagement with the international system to some degree of re-engagement. To wrap us out in uh, this podcast, um, a lot of our discussion today revolved around not only what the president, the initiative of the president, but also what Congress and you know uh, uh, certain members of Congress of certain uh, partisan affiliations, um, what their views on treaties, international obligations are, and how that's impacting what kind of agreements are made uh, around the world and the limits they're setting on the presidential action. I'm wondering what is the future of presidential congressional relationship in not only making international agreements, but also in the conduct of U.S. foreign policy in general? Do you see this trend of unilateral presidential control on international agreements persisting in the future? Um, or, as you said, you know, perhaps the situation in uh, the invasion of U Ukraine and the current competition with China changing these dynamics in Congress. So what do you see as the future of this relationship between the two branches of our government? It's a very good question. You know, it, it is hard to really underscore enough uh, the point that Congress and the executive branch actually are both very much engaged with foreign policy making as it currently stands. Uh, you know, the State Department, other foreign affairs agencies, the Defense Department spend a lot of time engaging Capitol Hill, talking to Capitol Hill, um, and taking feedback from Capitol Hill on a variety of sorts of policy issues. So it's it's not as much of a strictly executive branch lane as a lot of people envision it or think of it as, even though the executive branch has proven willing to act more unilaterally in recent decades and it than, than arguably used to, although that's debatable, on a variety of major foreign policy issues, whether it's executive agreements, whether it's uh, declarations of war or the use of military force, things like that. Um, uh, so, you know, the fact that you've seen the executive branch act more unilaterally doesn't mean Congress necessarily isn't engaged. But I think there's a strong argument that general foreign policy would be stronger with more fulsome engagement and proactive and visible engagement by Congress. Um, in which the president could and routinely does go to Congress, whether it's for authorization for use of military force in the case of a future armed conflict, whether it is for these treaties. And there is confidence that the international foreign policy being implemented by the executive branch 
has continuity domestically enough support, has enough sticking power. So we won't see these wild oscillations that we've seen around, for example, the GATPOA, the nuclear agreement with Iran, where we were part of it, withdrew, now have been extended negotiations to re-enter it that may be falling apart, like the Paris Agreement, where we've seen a similar bit of whiplash around our engagement across political administrations. Getting there, though, really depends on uh, political parties' views. Um, it, it is the conflicting views of different political parties that lead to the kind of whiplash effect. Um, previously, the kind of professional civil service bureaucracy really played a moderating effect on that. Um, frankly, you saw a lot more continuity between the end of the George W. Bush administration and beginning of the Obama administration than many people expected. And part of that is because by the end of the George W. Bush administration, the kind of professional policymakers had really helped come in and helped shape policies, tamp down some early perspectives, and settled on an approach that they thought was sustainable. And they made the case and persuaded the Obama administration to go along with a lot of it. Um, the Trump administration came in and had a very hostile view towards the, that professional class of civil servants and embraced uh, and, and enacted a lot of policies without consulting them in ways that that professional class strongly disagreed with. Um, and so a lot of this comes down to you know personnel being policy. I, I think the question is, do we uh, you know expect and can we expect future presidents um, to actually engage in the policymaking, take some of the wisdom from the career people, even if they have their own views? And that provides a lot more center of gravity that's con consistent across administrations moving forward, and that might lead to more continuity in policy. Congress can help with that a lot too if Congress similarly embraces some of that continuity and and doesn't have such strong you know red lines around engaging on international issues. And again, Ukraine may be softening that. I, I'm cautiously optimistic that we're going to see something in that direction. Um, and I do think the Trump administration may be a bit of an outlier. Again, prior Republican administrations had good relationships with professional policymakers, um, uh, and and so often you saw a lot of continuity and consultation taking place in policymaking. Um, and so perhaps we'll see a return to that being the norm moving forward. But at this particular moment, I don't I don't think we know. Well, certainly, there's still a very strong political strain that's very hostile to international engagement um, among both parties. Really, it's not just a one party thing. Um, uh, but it tends to take a more hostile international engagement as opposed to just being more, you know, constrained international engagement in in, in certain circles. Um, and then we also raised this question about hostility towards a professional policymaking class, um, which there is good reason sometimes to be skeptical of, but in the end, um, provide a lot of continuity in policy across administrations. And But if they are being viewed as a hostile element, um, you know, they're not going to have the inputs or the channels or and their views aren't going to be taken under advisement in ways that that contribute to that more stability. So we really have to wait and see. Um, in the end, a lot of the policymaking in this area is strongly, strongly influenced by politics. And I think where our politics are headed uh, in the next few years is a difficult thing to know for certain. Well, thank you so much, Scott, for joining us on the podcast today for an insightful and wide-ranging discussion. Absolutely. Happy to be here. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.